Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll turn over to Numbers chapter 20, and we will consider a related and yet distinct account of water from the rock. And so uh, here in Exodus chapter 17, we read, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. And those are loosely translated complaining, grumbling, testing, um, any number of words to capture what it was the people had done there because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us? Or not. Now, if you would turn over to Numbers chapter 20, and we are going to look together uh, at verses 2 through 13. Now, there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord here into the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron and your, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank in their livestock, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know how often you think about it, but I have recently woken up in the middle of the night with extreme thirst 
and gone to the faucet and poured the biggest cup of water I possibly could pour, and it was the sweetest drink I've had in a long time. And um, the ease with which we can do that is unparalleled in human history. I know you know that, but we often forget that. No generation has ever had access to water as we have. And in fact, there are many third world countries today that don't have access to water the way we have access to water by just turning on a faucet. And, and it, throughout the scriptures, the, the concept of thirst and quenching thirst with water is a prominent theme. Water is a prominent theme in scripture. Remember, the, the world was created with the waters covering the earth and God separating the waters from the dry land. And, and everywhere throughout redemptive history, there is water. Israel knew so well what God did by way of miracles with water. Remember, the first of the plagues was Moses taking the rod of judgment as God had commanded him and turning the life-giving water of Egypt into blood. And then with that same rod, remember, Moses had gone out when God brought out Egypt by a strong arm and an outstretched hand, and, and he stood, and with that rod, he parted the sea, and the waters separated, and Israel walked through on dry land. And as Israel is in the wilderness, uh, it's natural that we find these accounts of them thirsting, and um, they're in that dry and barren place, that symbol of the fallen world, isn't it? It's a symbol of the world in which we live, and it's a, it's a symbol of, of the environment in which we find ourselves. And um, uh, God has provided miraculously for Israel in the wilderness. Uh, just two chapters before this chapter, they were thirsty. They came to a place, there was bitter water. God said, throw the tree in the water. The bitter water became sweet. God provided for them clean, sweet water. And, and then in the chapter immediately before Exodus 17, the people are hungry and they're complaining and God uh, rains down angel bread on them, manna. Um, even the word uh, is probably a play off of what they said, which in Hebrew would have been something like, what is it? Uh, they didn't know what it was. It's bread from heaven. No one had ever had bread rain down from heaven. But God was always providing for Israel. But here now, Israel is again complaining. They're again grumbling. And God is going to do something wonderful with the same rod with which the first plague was brought about, the same rod with which the Red Sea was parted, God is going to tell Moses to do something with that rod in order to provide water for the grumbling and complaining Israelites in the desert. Now this incident and the incident in Numbers 20, and this is very important, are separated by 39 years. This is the first year of Israel in the wilderness, and Numbers 20 is the last year of Israel in the wilderness. And they are bookends of Israel's experience in the wilderness, what Israel never learned, which was to be thankful, grateful, and believing, and what Israel always did, which was complain and grumble and bicker, and what God always did in providing for them, even when they were in that sinful state, showing more of his goodness. And even more than that, giving them symbols of redemption in the wilderness. They're actually... Before we look at this passage, there are four main symbols of redemption in the wilderness. There is, um, there is 
the bitter water made sweet. There is the manna. There is the water from the rock. And there is the serpent on the pole. And all of those symbols point to Jesus Christ. All of those symbols in some way show what God is going to do in redemption. We know that because Jesus himself says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He will say in John 7, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. He is, he is the bread that comes down from heaven. The tree that gets thrown into the, the bitter water is a picture of the cross that makes the bitterness of life sweet, that takes away the curse. And, and Jesus said he was the serpent on the pole, that as the serpent on the pole was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Um, Paul is going to tell us in 1 Corinthians 10.1, all our fathers, speaking about Israel in the wilderness, all our fathers ate the same spiritual food as we eat. They all drank the same spiritual drink that we drank. That's an allusion to the supper. And he said, because they all drank from that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So Paul's going to look at Exodus 17, 1 through 7. He's going to look at Numbers 20, verses 2 and following, and he's going to understand and set out for us that that rock is Christ. Now, I want us to consider three things tonight. First, I want us to consider the historical setting, the complaint, and then I want us to consider the condemnation, and then I want us to consider the provision, the complaint, the condemnation, and the provision. Now, here's Israel. They're in the wilderness. God has provided for them miraculously. They've seen all his miracles. By the way, you've never seen a single miracle in your life, and I will argue with you about that. Uh, except regeneration, what you experienced if you were born again, you have, I don't believe, have ever seen a true miracle. Israel saw the Red Sea part and dry land appear. <laughs> they saw a pillar of fire by night, cloud by day and fire by night, leading them through the wilderness, protecting them from their enemies behind them. They saw that with their eyes, and they still did not believe they saw God provide sweet water out of bitter, and they have just seen bread fall from heaven. And not just bread, but sweet, succulent honey bread that's called angel's food. <laughs> Nobody ever had bread like this. And so God has provided for them incredibly, and what does Israel do? They're thirsty and so they, they all come to Moses and say, can we pray that God will provide more for us, right? No, they don't do that. They complain and grumble. They attack the Lord's servant. They go to Moses. Notice this. They're in a place of testing. They go to Moses as their camp. They quarrel with Moses. They say, give us water to drink. Now, what is Israel's problem? Well, it's our problem. We have the same hearts they do. Israel thought that they deserved provisions. Now, Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Israel goes to Moses and says, you give us water. We deserve it. Um, they, they, they denied that God was the one who would provide. Um, and then notice they're complaining as they thirsted, notice verse 3, they come to Moses, they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, now they're denying 
that, that God is their protector. They're denying that God is their provider. They go to Moses, give us water. Now they're denying that God is their protector, and they say, why did you bring us up here, Moses, to die in the wilderness? Essentially, they're saying, God will not protect us. And then, very interesting, they're complaining because they're denying God's, um, his, his, they're denying his presence with them. Um, they are essentially saying God is abandoning them to die. Um, is the Lord among us or not? Notice that last verse, verse 7. They, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So they denied his provision, his protection, and his presence. Remember, those were the things God promised Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, right? Provision, protection, presence for all eternity. And these are Abraham's descendants, and they have forgotten what God has constantly showed himself to be doing. Um, it's very interesting in Deuteronomy, there's two chapters in the early first eight chapters, chapter six, chapter eight, where um, Israel is told when they come into the land that God had promised to give them and they, they um, live in houses they didn't labor for and they eat food they didn't work for, be careful not to forget the Lord your God. And then when you come into the land and you build houses and you eat food for which you've labored, be careful not to forget the Lord your God. And Israel in the wilderness is showing us what we are like by nature, that we forget the Lord, and when we forget the Lord, we inevitably complain and grumble. We think we deserve more. We think when things go wrong, we blame others. Now, they're actually blaming the Lord, not Moses, and Moses knows that. Notice in the text, he, he says, why do you quarrel with me, verse 2? Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? You see, their attack on Moses here was really an attack on the Lord himself. Israel's going to do something similar 39 years from now in Numbers 20. And they're not just going to attack Moses, they're going to attack Moses and Aaron for their thirst. And they're going to go even beyond where they are now because that account is after the spies have come back and said there is a land flowing with milk and honey, there's everything they say that they don't have in the wilderness in Numbers 20, all those things they list off, was exactly what they were told was in the land. And they made the decision not to believe God and go into the land because they were afraid. And then they blame shift and they attack Moses and Aaron when they're the reason they're not in the land, not Moses and Aaron. You see, this is a picture of how deceptive our sin is. When we think we deserve more, when we've made a mistake, we blame shift. And, and at the end of the day, there's one person above every pastor, above every authority, that when we start blaming, that we're really aiming for, and that's God. Um, I once had an experience where someone was upset with me for not being in the, the hospital when this individual's parent was dying the day they were dying. And I had visited with this person many, many, many times leading up to this day and believed this individual would have wanted to be alone with their parent while they were dying. And they came to me very angry that I wasn't there. 
and I realized they weren't really angry with me, they were really angry with God, and I was the closest thing to God that they could find, even though I'm very far from God-like. <laughs> but but that's, that's what's happening with Israel. They're blaming the only one they can, the only, the only figures they can find, they're blaming when they're really blaming God. You see how subtle our sin is. Um, and they're doing it because they forgot. They, they have forgotten time and time again all that God has done for them. You know, when we start to question whether God will really provide for us, whether he'll really protect us, and whether he'll really be with us, the second we start questioning those things and doubting them is the moment we've forgotten how often he has done that for us in so many ways, both physically and spiritually. Um, one, of the, one of the chief ways um, to avoid grumbling and complaining is to meditate often on how much the Lord has done for us, how good he's been to us, how undeserving we are, um, how faithful. I don't know if you saw this. I noticed on, uh, there was a video circulating on social media this week of a lamb that had fallen into a crevice, and a little boy had pulled him out of this long ravine that this lamb had gotten stuck in, and he finally pulls the sheep out, and the sheep jumps off and runs down along the ravine, and he goes to jump over, and he falls in it again. And the caption is sort of like, me and the Lord. <laughs> he pulls us out, we run down, then we're back in it. And, and remembering how faithful our God is when we sin time and time again, and yet we go back to him, and we confess it, we cry out to him for deliverance, he delivers us. We cry out for provisions, he provides for us. We, we go to him and trust him, and he he, uh, Paul says he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than you can ask or think, according to his riches in Christ Jesus, that this is the God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can do anything. He is going to bring water out of a rock. Water doesn't come out of rocks. I know we have a lot of water running down rocks on this mountain, but water has never naturally come out of a rock. Um, so the people are complaining. And the people are really calling God to the courtroom. Now, the language is used of a, a law court, even the language of the names of the places, that this setting is becoming a courtroom in which the children of Israel are calling God to account. Now, remember, this is the interesting thing. They're being tried. They're, this place is a place of trial and testing, just like the place of bitter water in chapter 15. God is testing them to see if they'll trust him. And they are now going to bring God down and put him on trial. That's what's happening. Um, they're demanding justice. Edmund Clowney said they demand justice. Since God is not available to stand trial, they will accuse Moses in his stead. They are ready to stone him. Um, he says, stoning, of course, is not mob violence, but judicial execution by the community with witnesses throwing the first stone. They, they, are, they are essentially, all the language is saying, this is a courtroom and this is the people and they are going to be, they are going to be prosecutor, they are going to be judge, they are going to be executioner. And, and they're really wanting to do that to God himself, but since they can't, they'll do it to Moses. And so Moses does the right thing and he takes it to the Lord and... And what's fascinating and 
I want us to consider here, secondly, is uh, the condemnation. Now, Israel's guilty. Um, As I meditated on this passage this week, I thought, wow, praise God that he doesn't deal with his people the way we would deal with others. Um, We would be a lot quicker to obliterate people if we had our druthers, if it was up to us. Somebody rubs you the wrong way, cuts you the wrong way, I'll show them. That's, that's what's in our hearts. Here, the infinite God who gives to all life and breath and all things is dealing with the people he's redeemed out of Egypt, done everything for. They hate him. They are complaining against him. They are grumbling against him. They are unthankful. And now they're calling him to trial. And, and he essentially gives them what they want. Notice this. Notice in the trial itself, there's going to be condemnation. Notice that the Lord tells Moses what to do. He says, he says in verse 5, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Now, if we were writing this story, we would say, and God said, take the rod and strike the people with it till they're all dead. Because that's what they deserve. That's what we deserve. Remember in the 10th plague, if Israel didn't have the blood of the Passover, the same judgment that fell on Egypt would have fallen on them because they deserved the same thing as Egypt. You deserve the same thing as the pagan you hate so much. You deserve the same thing as the person you despise in your heart. I deserve the same thing. Israel deserves judgment. And they should have been the objects of judgment. But notice this. This is fascinating. Notice this. He says, go... Notice verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. That's where God first called Moses. The burning bush was at Horeb. It's where he had that experience. Now he tells Moses, I'm going to stand on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, come out of it and the people will drink. Now, I don't know if you remember in our series... Uh, when we looked at the angel of the Lord appearing to Samson's parents, Manoah and his wife, and, and when they sacrificed, the angel of the Lord went up into the flame to show that he would be the sacrifice, that he would be consumed in the fire of God's wrath. You have a similar picture here. Here, Moses is not just striking the rock. Moses is striking the Lord. Don't miss that. The Lord is going to stand on the rock. And so if Moses is going to strike the the rock with the rod of justice and the Lord is standing on the rock, the Lord is getting struck with the rod of justice. That's, That's the picture. That's what's happening. The Lord is prefiguring. Paul could say that rock is Christ because Yahweh said he was going to stand on the rock. And and Paul understood this is not just some Masoretic tradition, as some people might try to convince you. And this is, this is in the text. The Lord is going to be struck with the rod of justice. Um, this is what the people would have done to the Lord if they could have. Um, let me read this to you. Phil Riken says this, The Bible often refers to God as a rock. He is the rock of Israel. The rock whose works 
are perfect. The rock, who is a fortress and a refuge, he is the rock of our salvation. In keeping with this imagery, the rock that Moses struck with his rod was a symbol of God and his salvation. It showed how God would submit to the blow of his own justice so that out of him would flow life for his people. God did this in the person of his son. The rock was Christ because like the rock, Christ was struck with divine judgment. That's what happened to him on the cross. Christ was bearing the curse for our sin, so God struck him with the rod of his justice. Isn't that amazing? At the moment of Israel's uh, worst manifestation of rebellion in the wilderness, God is giving them a picture of how he's going to provide salvation. So you would know how gracious God is. God doesn't do it when Israel is all on their knees praying for the water. That's not when he does this. Why? Because if, if they all came together and said, Moses, let's, you know, all two million heads bowed and eyes closed, which is not in the Bible. That's why it's not in Exodus. <laughs> and, and, and they all, all two million of them said, let's pray together. And then the Lord's like, okay, go take the rod and strike the rock. I'll stand there. You, wouldn't under, you would think God is doing this because they deserve it. But at their moment of greatest rebellion, he is showing what it is going to cost, but what he is going to do to provide for them. We have been talking recently about that hymn, O Christ, what burdens bow thy head. And there are just so many relevant lines throughout this series, but I love this line. Uh, Ann Cousins said, Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. The rod of justice that was represented by Moses' rod, is representative of the wrath of God that he's taking on himself in order to provide for us. You know, there is a clear principle of substitution here, isn't there? Israel deserves to be struck. The Lord says, I will stand in the place of my people and I will take the wrath they deserve. That's the picture. Clear picture of substitution. Clear picture of God's justice falling on himself. Um, you know, we never want to lose a sense of astonishment at that. Um, if you've been a Christian a year or 40 years, you should never lose a sense of astonishment that the rod of God's wrath should fall on you, but Christ takes it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you don't, you don't do anything to deserve that. It's all grace. 100% grace that God provides that. Um, you know, it's interesting. Israel was, they were denying, they were denying the provision of God, the protection of God, and the presence of God. And in the symbol of the rod of God's wrath falling on the Lord himself, pointing to what Christ would endure on the cross. That's where God provides, protects, and seals his presence with his people. That's, that's where he secures those things for his people. Isn't that awesome? The very thing they are grumbling about, he's showing them, I'm going to show you where I do those things to the full. 
Now the provision, and I just want us to consider this in the third place. The rock was Christ. And from the rock flowed life-giving water for the people in the wilderness. Um, You know, the Apostle John loves the water theme and seems to develop it in the gospel from the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7 to the, the, the moment when Jesus dies and is dead on the cross, still nailed to the tree. And in John 7, Jesus stands up in that last day of the great feast and he says, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. He is, he is calling those who are spiritually thirsty to come and to drink deeply. Remember, Isaiah had picked up that language, right? Come to me, all you who are thirsty, right? Come buy wine and milk without money and without price, the idea of God quenching the thirst of his people. Isaiah had talked about in the new covenant, streams would burst forth in the wilderness, that what Christ would accomplish, he would cause streams to flow in the wilderness. And and he stands up and he says, come to me, if you're thirsty, come and drink. Let your soul drink and be satisfied. And And then he's crucified. And remember the the, the soldier comes and seeing that he's dead, he pierces his side and blood and water flow out. And the blood is proof that our sins have been atoned for. The water is a sign that life flows from the crucified son. And then John, at the end of the Bible, at the very end of God's revelation in the book of Revelation, almost the last words, the, the spirit and the bride say, whoever is thirsty, let him come. Let him drink of the waters of life. And and John envisions Jesus as the shepherd of his people, leading his people besides the living waters for all eternity, the healing waters, the, the Holy Spirit who would flow from Jesus so that when my heart is like Israel's heart and I want the wrong things and I'm, I'm drinking, as Jeremiah said, from broken cisterns that can hold no water. My, my best friend says that imagery of Jeremiah where God says, my, my people have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He said, every time we sin, it's like taking a pot with sand and just saying, satisfy me. And that's what you're doing, and that's what I'm doing. Every time we complain and grumble, every time we're sexually immoral, every time... We are hateful towards someone. Every time we are greedy, every time we're discontent, we are just trying to drink sand, and God is saying, I am an infinite fountain of water, and in Christ I have provided for that water to satisfy you. That's what all of this is about. Now, what's interesting is Exodus 17 and Exodus and Numbers 20 are meant to go together, these two accounts. One at the beginning, one at the end of the wilderness wandering. And, and what is unique is that in Numbers 20, and you know this, God tells Moses, go and speak to the rock, and it will give you living water. Go tell the rock, and it will give you living water. And Moses takes it upon himself. Now Moses falls into the same snare as Israel. He thinks he can actually give them water. He's now, that's why Moses can't enter into the promised land. He and Aaron both take it on themselves as if they can actually do what God alone can do. 
Um, by the way, there is a very real warning to ministers and anybody who ministers to think you have the resources in yourself to give the people of God what they need, and you don't. Moses falls into that snare in Numbers 20, and, and he goes over and he hits the rock not once, but twice. Now, God still graciously supplies his people with water. But how, how do these things go together? If, if, if Exodus 17 is a clear picture of Jesus being struck on the cross with the rod of justice, what is the picture of Numbers 20 supposed to teach us? Well, um, Jesus only has to be struck with the rod of God's justice and wrath once, and the living waters flow. And then all you have to do is ask him, and he'll give it to you. That, that's the picture. That's not allegorizing. It's not hyper-spiritualizing. -spiritual, that's a biblical, theological truth about who Jesus is. Jesus is struck once for all. He never needs to be struck again, and he will always provide the life-giving water to those that ask him. Isn't that amazing? Edmund Clowney again says, uh, when Jesus was crucified, John blood and water poured from his side. We do not wonder that Moses was judged severely for striking the rock a second time when he had been told to speak it, of it. Only once at the appointed time does God bear the stroke of our doom. Isn't that beautiful? Um, we never... In this life, we will never get to a place where we do not need to cry out to Christ to give us more of the living water. Um, that's not a one-time thing when you first come to Jesus. That's an every day of our life through the wilderness of this world. We are in the wilderness. That's, that's the picture. We are sojourning to the promised land. And God is going to provide everything we need along the way and he's glorified when we trust him in the way he tells us to trust him. And we take him at his word in what he says he's done for us. So that whenever I start to think, does God really, is he going to provide for me? Is he going to protect me? Is he going to be with me? I am ultimately questioning what he has already done, who he already is, and what he's already said to me. Um, you know, it should, it should, it should be a point of sobriety to us to think about how much we, maybe just in our hearts, doubt that the Lord really cares for us to do those things. What, what the scripture says is he's already done it. Because he's given his son up, because Christ has accomplished redemption, because the rod of justice has fallen on him because the blood and the water has flown from him, because he's risen and he calls you to come to him and to drink, because of every mercy and every grace and every kindness, every forgiveness, every rescue, every time you say, Lord, have mercy on me, and you wonder if he's going to, and then you look back and you see he did. Have you not experienced that? crying out to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, and then wondering if he will, only to look back months or years later and say he did. Um, and all along the way, this is the wonderful truth, all along the way, 
God provides for our thirsty souls. I remember as a boy reading Psalm 42, and I was so thankful for the psalm that Pastor Cosby picked as the call to worship, but I remember reading um, those famous words, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God, in a dry and barren barren land where there is no water. And I remember as a boy not understanding what it meant to have your soul thirst for the living God, because my soul wasn't thirsting for him. As an adult, I know what it is. Because the longer we go on, the more sin we battle with, the more failures we have, the more temptations we feel, the harder life gets. It's as if life gets more and more parched. And yet the same Christ says, look, come to me. You're thirsty. Come to me and drink. I'll never forget, I'll leave you with this thought. You know, hell and May God not send any of us to hell. Um, Hell is a place of thirst. The rich man just begged that Lazarus could just give him a drop of water from his sore-ridden finger to cool his thirst. And there was none. There's no provision. Um, But when Christ hung on the cross, what did he cry out? He cried out, I thirst, as he endured hell for us. Is that not awesome? He thirsted the wrath of God. He thirsted under the wrath of God. The psalmist, Christ says to the psalmist, my tongue cleaves to my jaw. He thirsted. He felt the thirst of the wrath of God, the, the, the sapping of his life so that we wouldn't have to endure that. And so all you have to do is go to him and ask him. That's it. In just childlike faith, in taking him at his word to say, Lord, I am thirsty. Will you give me the life-giving waters of the Spirit? And he's promised to do that. Jesus said, look, if your earthly fathers who know how to give good gifts, and they're evil, and we're all evil, right, men? We're all evil fathers, yes. Amen? (laughs) We are all evil. If your earthly fathers who are evil, Jesus says, know how to give good gifts to their children, and children, we give you good gifts, right? V-bucks and stuff like that. How much more... How much more will your Father in heaven not give the Spirit to those who ask? Um, I hope that you'll be encouraged to fix your eyes again on the Christ who was struck with the rod of justice in our place and that you would go to him and that you would cry out to him for that living water. Even if it's the 10,000th time you've done it, he's promised to do that, he's provided that, and he will continue to do so. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would make us to see the sufficiency of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus afresh. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the rock that was struck on the cross in our place for our sin, for our guilty souls, for all the times that we have complained and grumbled. For all the times that we have doubted your provision and protection and presence, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us the living waters again. We pray that you would forgive us for drinking out of broken cisterns that can hold no water, and we pray that you would give us abundantly out of your fullness, that you would pour your spirit out on us, and that you would give us grace to drink 
deeply of the wells of salvation. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do this for each and every man and woman and boy and girl in this place. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.